good afternoon. It's um, a great pleasure for me uh, to be able to introduce this uh, latest in the Green Street Lecture Series and, and one which I think is a, a particularly important part of this year's series. I know that the Bar Council Irish Judiciary have had um, significant contact with judges, lawyers and universities in the Chicago area. I, I do need to say a little about Patrick Fitzgerald. Um, if I were to give full justice to his uh, CV, I'm afraid I'd take up all the time that we have available for this talk. So this is very much a truncated version. Uh, but the fact that what I'm about to say is in itself the truncated version, I think in itself speaks volumes. Um, Patrick has a very distinguished career both in the public and private sector, as it were, in uh, the practice of law. Uh, having initially practiced in uh, private practice, uh, he was for over 20 years, uh, a, a, a firstly an assistant uh, district attorney in New York, followed by being uh, the US attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, which as I understand it is it includes Chicago, and was the longest serving uh, holder of that office, having been appointed in 2001 and remaining there until 2012 uh, when he returned to private practice in Skadden. Um, during that time uh, and his previous time in the Southern District of uh, New York, which effectively includes Manhattan, uh, he was involved in many outstanding criminal trials as prosecutor. Uh, some of the names uh, are ones with which we would all be familiar. Um, he was involved in the prosecution uh, uh, in the United States versus Osama bin Laden, arising out of the uh, bombings on US embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, he was involved in the case of United States and Omar Abdelrahman, uh, which involved the bombing of the World, the World Trade Center and also was involved in many serious criminal trials involving organized crime. On top of all that, he also was involved in a large number of bodies, committees and the like, which were set up to deal with difficult issues in the context of various types of serious crime. So he has an extraordinarily wide experience in the area of uh, prosecuting uh, serious terrorist and organized crime in the United States. Um, those of you who know me know I like to do things by numbers. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in his CV was that he was recognized as one of the top 100 lawyers in the United States. And given that the United States has a population of 66 times Ireland, that means he's the equivalent of being one of the top one and a half lawyers in Ireland. I uh, don't know who the other half might be. Uh, but his topic today is also, I think, one which is of huge interest. He is a perfect person to speak on it, but I think it's something from which we have a lot to learn. Ireland has had many problems over perhaps the last 30 or 40 years in trying to work out the best way to in, engage in inquiry into issues of genuine public concern. We've had various models. Some are seen to have worked better than others in some circumstances. The current controversies surrounding the report 
church of into the mother and baby homes is yet another example of a, a debate about how best we can go about uh, inquiring into serious matters. Uh, and therefore, the US uh, special counsel's model is something that bears some consideration uh, on this side of the Atlantic as well. And there is, I think, no better person uh, to speak to an Irish audience and explain to us how that works, uh, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, or like many such things, somewhere in between, uh, and also perhaps to allow us to see if there are any lessons from what has been learned uh, in the operation of that system in the United States, which might be of advantage to us here. So I'll hand over the floor to Patrick Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, and thank you, uh, Chief Justice Clark, for the overly kind introduction. I'm happy to talk to you today about the, uh, the topic of uh, independent councils or special councils in the United States. If I can give a, a quick summary and a spoiler alert as to what the conclusion is, I would sum it up this way. You can't live with them and you can't live without them. And the history in the United States has been a, a search for what to do when there are allegations of corruption going to high levels of the government. Now, uh, for folks like me, uh, considered a baby boomer in the United States, uh, if you ask them when special counsels or special prosecutors first came into play, I think their initial reaction would likely be to be to point to Watergate in the 1970s, the scandal under uh, President Nixon. But actually in the history, you'd have to go back further, back to the 1860s when this issue first came into play. And that involved a, a, a famous American president, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, Grant was a colorful character uh, who sort of came to fame in the United States for his uh, exploits as a general in the Union Army, and he was quite successful. Now, one thing that they might say about General Grant, he went to West Point, uh, the U.S. Military Academy where he was trained, became a general, but he's rumored to have had a drinking problem. Uh, and the story came up uh, with President Lincoln, where folks came to President Lincoln and said, Grant is a drunkard, and we can prove it. It's reported that Lincoln said, um, you don't need to prove it, but then responded, I wish some of you would tell me the brand of whiskey that General Grant drinks. I would like to buy a barrel of it for my other generals. So uh, they put aside the rumors of his uh, drinking whiskey and let him carry on with a successful uh, conclusion of, of uh, the Civil War. Unfortunately, uh, President Lincoln was assassinated shortly after the Civil War um, ended and Ulysses S. Grant, uh, being incredibly popular, became president. His presidency had a lot to commend for it. Um, uh, the Department of Justice, where regular prosecutors work, was created not into the 1700s, but under President Grant, who stood up the Department of Justice to protect uh, the rights of freed slaves, particularly in the South. The horrible uh, Ku Klux Klan had formed and was engaging in lynchings and violence, and the Department of Justice principally was stood up to combat that threat. Now, President Grant had a lot to uh, commend for him in terms of the work he did as president, but the issue of whiskey came back to him, and that's why this ties into the topic of special counsels. Um, during his time as president, he had a lot of close associates around him. One of them was a man named General Orville Babcock, and Babcock had gone to the military academy at West Point with Grant. He had fought with Grant and in fact, at the end of the Civil War, when Robert E. Lee surrendered uh, to the Union Army at the Appomattox Courthouse, uh, alongside General Grant was General Babcock. In the meantime, uh, there were whiskey rings in the U.S., which was basically an effort to dodge taxes. The federal inspectors were going around trying to tax whiskey. 
and they conspired with the distillers to understate the tax and split the profits. An investigation arose under Grant's watch, and investigators began to find evidence that implicated General Orville Babcock, his close friend, who was um, whose title was personal secretary, which is equivalent to the modern chief of staff. The question then became, what was Grant going to do about an investigation happening on his watch that implicated his close friend and chief of staff? Grant famously told the investigators that he didn't believe his friend was guilty, but told them to continue the investigation, uttering the phrase, let no guilty man escape if it can be avoided. So he was recognized then for doing the right thing and appointing a special prosecutor, um, calling upon a Republican senator at the time. Then that special prosecutor began indicting and convicting people. I believe he convicted a total of more than 100 people in these schemes, but he got to the point where the investigator charged Grant's close friend, General Babcock, um, and he was basically accused of sending messages to tip off uh, the distillers when the inspectors were coming. And the prosecutor made remarks indicating that the president had possibly interfered in the investigation. Grant was no longer happy. He was furious. He ordered his attorney general to fire the prosecutor, and the attorney general, in fact, did so. And we'd see shades of what would happen uh, 100 years later with uh, Nixon and Watergate. The press was very angry at Grant and called him out, uh, requoting him as saying, let no guilty man escape unless he lives in the palace. Uh, Grant was furious at the press. He wanted to bring reporters before the grand jury to have them justify their stories. He believed in his friend's innocence so much, he declared to his cabinet that he would um, travel to St. Louis to testify at Babcock's trial. Uh, he was eventually convinced to give testimony out of court, but his testimony was admitted at the trial. Babcock was acquitted, although Grant had to fire him. It was, not the, it was the first but not the last time that a president embraced a special prosecutor only to become quite frustrated and angry and fire him and sort of disown his prior decision. Now, following Grant's encounter with a special prosecutor investigating his friend and some other friends around him, this would not be the first or last time, even before Watergate, where the White House would be embroiled in a controversy that required special measures beyond the usual prosecution methods. About half a century later, uh, there would be what was called the Teapot Dome Scandal, and I'll explain that name in a moment. And that occurred in the 1920s under President Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding was known at his time as a well-respected and well-thought-of president. History has not treated him kindly. Uh, he has been treated as one of the worst presidents and having one of the most corrupt administrations. So the Teapot Dome Scandal. Uh, there were oil rights that were extremely important uh, at that time, and oil rights around a, a place in Wyoming uh, that was the Teapot Dome Reservation. And the name came from an odd formation of rocks that resembled a teapot to an observer. So a Secretary of Interior under uh, Harding's administration leased uh, the lands uh, at a very favorable rate to two oil tycoons. There was an outrage, there was an inquiry, and eventually, over a long time, it came to light that the Secretary of Interior, a member of President Harding's cabinet, had a secret no-interest loan from one of the oil tycoons and later secret gifts. When it came to light um, that there was an investigation going on, and the investigation went 
very slowly because of uh, obstruction. Eventually, the um, Interior uh, Secretary Albert Fall became the first cabinet member in US history to go to prison for taking bribes. There's an interesting side note. Uh, the person who was alleged to have paid him the bribes was an oil tycoon named Edward Doherty, whose father had fled Tipperary during the uh, famine. Uh, and he was tried, but he was acquitted. So the bribe payer uh, was acquitted, but the bribe receiver went to jail. Um, when faced with what to do, President Harding um, uh, had a, uh, there was no special prosecutor as in a prosecutor from the Department of Justice, but he appointed a lead investigator again from the Senate. And this was uh, Senator Thomas Walsh of Montana, who was the son of Irish immigrants. His, uh, he was, his father was an Irish Catholic from Iran, and his mother was from Mayo. Uh, and Senator Tom Walsh went ahead and prosecuted any number of people. Uh, Warren Harding himself had died in the meantime, so he never uh, lived to see the consequences of his actions. But this was an effort again when the U.S. turned to a legislator, uh, a sitting legislature, um, uh, to address this problem. Um, one other note, uh, Harding's administration also saw corruption involving his uh, attorney general, uh, who was indicted for corruption twice, uh, but acquitted. And that attorney general was Harry Darty, um, who there should have been uh, some sense he might be a problem since he was found while in law school to be tapping telegraph lines as part of a sports gambling ring. The oddity of having Congress at the time investigate people involved in the executive branch of government uh, made for the issue to be a, a ripe legal issue for the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court held in, in, in uh, a relevant decision that is a proper exercise of congressional oversight for Congress to conduct that investigation. But I would note that absent be given, being given prosecutorial powers, most congressional investigations do, do not have the possibility of criminal charges at the end. So with that backdrop of the whiskey rings in the Grant administration being pursued uh, by a special prosecutor and the lead investigator in the Teapot Dome scandal pursuing it uh, in the Warren Harding administration, we get to the most famous investigation um, in perhaps uh, of US history, and that's Watergate. A reminder of Watergate, um, Watergate happened in the summer of 1972. Uh, President Nixon was finishing up his first term and very much desirous of having a second term and his campaign was in full gear. In fact, his first attorney general, uh, a close confidant and friend named John Mitchell had stepped down from his position as the attorney general of the United States to work for uh, Nixon's reelection committee. Um, it was a strangely named committee uh, the Committee to Re-Elect the President, which was shortened to an acronym of CREEP, um, C-R-E-E-P, and John Mitchell, the Attorney General, was uh, involved with it. It would later turn out uh, that tapes would show that the former Attorney General was actively involved in planning break-ins of the opposition headquarters. So the Democratic National Committee uh, had offices in a hotel called the Watergate Hotel which is how the scandal got its name. And with Mitchell's knowledge and planning, uh, they had a, a group of burglars break into the Watergate Hotel, into the office to rummage through files, and actually to plant listening devices uh, on the telephones of people involved in the Democratic National Committee. Um, in June of 1972, 
they realized that one of those listing devices wasn't working, so they needed to break in again. And in June 1972, five burglars dressed in suits, but wearing surgical gloves not to leave fingerprints, went into the Watergate Hotel to the sixth floor to break into the Democrat, uh, Democratic National Committee headquarters. Now they took the precaution of putting a lookout in a motel across the street without uh, lookout would watch the building from uh, the other side of the street and call if there were any issues. The burglars uh, weren't the best. They used to open doors before the burglaries and to make sure they you know, didn't lock, they put tape on the doors. And a security guard noticed some strange behavior and called the police. Uh, the police did not respond with a uniformed officer with lights and sirens. And there's a story which may or may not be true that the reason for it was that the assigned uniformed officer was inebriated at a local pub and not available for the call. So they went to a backup team. Uh, this we know for sure. And three officers responded to the plate of suspicious behavior at the hotel. They were undercover plainclothesmen. They were dressed up as hippies in an effort to do drug deals uh, that night, but instead were diverted to the Watergate Hotel. Now, you would have thought that the uh, lookout across the street would have caught wind of this, um, but he did not at first. Uh, the lookout became absorbed in a movie he was watching in his hotel room. The movie was The, the Attack of the Puppet People, um, a great American contribution to filmography. Um, and while distracted by the attack of the puppet people, the hippies proceeded into the building. At some point, he looked up and saw the hippies uh, in the hallways uh, with firearms. He called over to the burglary team and asked them what they were wearing. They said, we're wearing suits. And he said, well, you're in trouble. I see hippies with guns. And shortly thereafter, five guys in suits with surgical gloves in their hands are arrested by three hippies with guns and the Watergate burglar was exposed. Now, it was labeled by the White House a third-rate burglary a few days later. It did not get quite the attention one might think in retrospect, but the, that, the next phase became whether or not these burglars had any ties to the White House. And the maxim uh, that the cover-up is worse than the crime is borne out by uh, what unfolded with Watergate. Now, with people paying some attention, there were two investigative reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, who followed the story and developed sources, including a famous source named Deep Throat, who many, many decades later was revealed to be the number two person at the FBI. And as with the Teapot Dome investigation, uh, there were congressional investigations going on in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the Senate uh, investigation was televised, involved a senator named Sam Irvin. And as things went along, uh, Nixon gave an update to the public at one point, making a very plain quote, I am not a crook, uh, close quote. While this was going on, more and more political dirty tricks began to emerge uh, from the background. And during one of the hearings, a bombshell revelation uh, came out that Nixon was actually taping conversations in the White House. A number of people began to resign from positions, including the Attorney General. And uh, when the Attorney General resigned, uh, a guy named Kleindienst, uh, Nixon appointed a man named Elliot Richardson. However, Congress was going to have nothing of it unless there was a special prosecutor appointed to look into Watergate. And finally, uh, to get out of the stalemate and to get the Attorney General appointed, it was agreed that they would confirm Attorney General Elliot Richardson on the condition 
that he appoint a special prosecutor to look at the Watergate matter. Richardson did. He appointed a Harvard Law School professor, so not a career prosecutor, uh, named Archibald Cox, and Richardson made a public commitment that he promised not to interfere with Cox's duties. So with Cox now appointed to sit apart from the Department of Justice, uh, where Nixon had appointed the Attorney General, and frankly, where there were allegations that Nixon had abused various federal agencies to his own ends, Cox stood out there as a special prosecutor who the Attorney General would not interfere with. Following the bombshell revelation that Nixon had operated a taping system in the Oval Office that recorded a number of conversations, Cox pushed forward and subpoenaed the tapes for his investigation. He wanted to find out what people in the White House were saying. Nixon pushed back strongly, uh, was outraged that Cox would not drop the subpoena, and then in a famous event in October of 1973, called the Saturday Night, M Night Massacre, uh, when Cox wouldn't drop the subpoena, President Nixon ordered the Attorney General to fire him. Uh, the Attorney General had previously committed publicly, he wouldn't interfere with Cox, and he held his word. Um, he resigned, rather than uh, carry out the order to fire Cox. The order now fell to the number two at the Department of Justice, the Deputy Attorney General. He was told to fire Cox, and he resigned uh, instead. And finally, the number three person in the Department of Justice, Solicitor General Robert Bork, fired Cox. But one thing he was required to do was to name a new special prosecutor, and he did. Uh, he named a man named Leon Jaworski, who carried on the work of the special prosecutor Cox. And uh, his hiring was conditioned on the fact that he could not be fired without the consent of the majority of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So here you had a political body uh, and a majority vote was needed by that political body in order to end uh, uh, Leon Jaworski, Jaworski's term, which never happened. As we move forward in March of 1974, um, uh, charges were brought by that special prosecutor, including seven high-ranking figures. Uh, one of them was John Mitchell, the former Attorney General. Um, he had resigned, I mentioned before, to run the re-election campaign. The tapes um, showed uh, that he planned the break-in and that he also worked uh, with Nixon to cover up uh, the scandal. And indeed, there's uh, credible reports that his own wife kept wanting to call the newspapers to blow the whistle on the scandal. And they hired bodyguards to keep her from the phone and effectively kidnapped her, sometimes yanking the wires out of the phone when she tried to call a reporter. Um, Mitchell was convicted thus becoming the second cabinet member in U.S. history to go to prison. Finally, the whole issue of whether or not the tapes belong to Nixon and only to Nixon is part of the executive privilege that he had, or whether or not uh, the, the grand jury and special prosecutor Jaworski, who was entitled to those tapes, was settled uh, by the Supreme Court in July 1974 when they ordered the tapes to be produced, um, and, and Nixon complied with that order turned over those tapes, and then based upon those tapes uh, and some startling revelations about both what he knew and did, but just also how Nixon talked and treated people, the impeachment process began in earnest in August of 1974. Uh, on August 8th, Nixon resigned, uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, President Ford took office and famously pardoned Nixon uh, because he thought it was necessary to do so 
in order to end the long national nightmare of Watergate. I would note two things out of the Watergate episode. First of all, in those situations where we see um, allegations of corruption touching the president or the folks around the president, those are the situations that most often call for a special prosecutor and looking for a prosecutor independent of the uh, administration to investigate. But they're also the ones where it's most likely the president may have personal contacts with people who may wish to be pardoned and the presidents do have the pardon power. So we saw it in um, Watergate that President Ford pardoned Nixon and we'll see through some of the later chapters of the special counsel investigations that the issue of whether people should be pardoned uh, is a ripe issue that comes up in many of these cases. The second thing I would say about um, the Watergate affair is if you look at special counsels, uh, this is probably the high watermark for how much people appreciated the need for a special prosecutor and how Cox and Jaworski became heroes. And the view was that without those special prosecutors pushing forward, the Watergate scandal would not have come to light and Nixon would not have resigned. With that backdrop, uh, the first time a statute was adopted in the US to deal with this came in 1978 under the um, under the watch of President uh, Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter uh, was involved in signing the Ethics in Government Act, which had many provisions, but one of which <clears throat> was to provide for uh, a special prosecutor in appropriate circumstances. There were three key aspects of that law in 1978. One was that the law was going to be in effect for five years, but would expire if not renewed. And you will see that that becomes important as the five-year uh, periods um, come and go as to whether or not the law is renewed, amended, or lapsed. And so the five-year provision became important. The second was that the law provided that the special prosecutor would not be appointed by anyone in the executive branch, but by a special panel of three judges called the special panel who came from the Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. And the third point, was the law specified the conditions that would require such an appointment. And basically, uh, it was a, a default assumption that if an allegation was made, an appointment would be made. The language in essence said that the attorney general, whenever uh, receiving specific charges of misconduct, would appoint a special counsel unless those charges were so unsubstantiated as did not warrant further investigation. That has been described subsequently as a hair trigger, sort of like the attorney general, here's a complaint, they appoint a special counsel unless they can affirmatively make the case other, the otherwise. When that was passed in 1978, the next five years uh, the, the, of the statute saw 11 matters referred uh, under that statute and three special prosecutors appointed. In none of the three cases did the special prosecutor bring charges. Two of them involved personal drug use behavior. One of them involved uh, President Carter's chief of staff and whether or not he had uh, ingested cocaine at Studio 54, a nightclub in Manhattan. Um, and another involved a different uh, official and whether or not he had used drugs. The third person investigated under um, that regime by a special prosecutor was a man named um, Raymond Donovan, uh, the Secretary of Labor under President Reagan and Reagan respected him and stood by him. But the allegation was that uh, Donovan, while he was a construction um, uh, 
industry executive in New York and New Jersey, was engaged with activities in organized crime. The special prosecutor investigated and brought no charges. However, this may have had an impact on how uh, President Reagan would later view um, the statute because he was separately indicted by what I'll call a regular prosecutor in the Bronx of New York and went to trial <clears throat> and was thereafter acquitted. And he famously went on the courthouse steps after being acquitted and say, which office do I go to to get my reputation back? So in those five years under the Ethics in Government Act uh, that President Carter had signed, there were a number of investigations and no charges. That brings us to uh, 1983 and President Reagan is in office and he's faced with the question of what to do and whether to sign a renewal of the act. Um, President Reagan was strongly opposed to the act. Um, he thought that the um, statute was unconstitutional and, and many have argued that it is unconstitutional to take the power from the executive branch invested elsewhere, in this case with judges appointing special prosecutors. But while maintaining it was unconstitutional, um, Reagan relented to opposition and signed the bill. Now, this bill, when renewed, made uh, a few changes, one of which is inconsequential, but the word special prosecutor became um, independent counsel because people like that optic better. But more importantly, the trigger for when a, a special counsel or independent counsel had to be appointed was changed. The attorney general was uh, instructed to appoint uh, an independent counsel only when they found reasonable grounds to believe that further investigation is warranted. So the hair trigger was removed. After signing this, President Reagan would go on to regret uh, signing the bill. Uh, there were seven independent counsels appointed during his administration. The first one concerned his first attorney general, Edwin Meese, um, but resulted in no charges. Uh, of the other six, the one that uh, stands out the most uh, was the Iran-Contra investigation. And I'll explain that title and remind folks if they're familiar with it or uh, what that was. So the Contra in Iran-Contra were the Contras fighting rebels in Nicaragua, and Iran was Iran. Uh, there was a covert plan in the Reagan administration to sell arms to Iran at a time when there was an embargo that would have prohibited sales. At the same time, uh, it was hoped that by selling arms to Iran, there would be hostages released. And then the cash that was received for the arms sales would be given to the Contras who were fighting in Nicaragua. And that became an issue because Congress passed a law um, that basically said uh, no funding can be used uh, to fund the fight in Nicaragua. Um, I believe the folks that tried to defend their conduct said Congress passed a law saying the funds couldn't be used, but these weren't congressional funds. They were money coming from Iran. But putting aside whether or not uh, the actions violated the law, uh, there was a great outcry uh, that we were dealing with Iran and using money to circumvent Congress's direction to not fund the Contras. Uh, given that, um, a independent counsel was appointed, a man named Lawrence Walsh, a respected uh, former federal judge and accomplished lawyer. Walsh went about his investigation and he obtained a number of convictions, mostly for obstruction of justice. And this is a theme that often comes up in special counsel investigations because often these cases aren't like, like a drug deal. You know, can you find the drugs? 
uh, or like a bank robbery, can you prove the person went into the bank? Many of these cases involve intent, and many of these cases are built on the testimony of witnesses. And the argument made by special counsels is when a witness lies, obstructs the investigation, there needs to be a penalty both to punish that witness and to set an incentive in the future for witnesses to cooperate truthfully. Um, I will say the flip side of that is many critics of independent counsels uh, dismiss prosecutions for what they'll call process crimes uh, of perjury or obstruction of justice as not being significant. Um, that's uh, an issue on which people can have different views. I'm strongly of the view that uh, legitimate, you know, a legitimate case of perjury or obstruction of justice is serious. In any event, um, some of his convictions were overturned because Congress was doing its own investigation and bestowed immunity on the um, witnesses and made them testify. And the argument made in court was that the prosecution couldn't prove that the prosecution wasn't um, based in part on evidence derived from that immunity. One of the persons who famously benefited from that doctrine was a man named Oliver North. Uh, he was a colonel who went to um, a lieutenant colonel who went to Iran to broker this deal. He famously traveled under a false name on an Irish passport. Um, the name was John Clancy. His mother's name was Anne Teresa Clancy, uh, and he was one of the principal protagonists in the Iran Contra affair. Um, a number of folks were charged. Perhaps the most senior person awaiting trial around Christmas time of 1992 was the former uh, defense secretary uh, under Reagan, uh, Cap Weinberger. And at the end of his term, um, as Reagan was uh, about to, um, I'm sorry, at the end of the Bush 41 term, as President George uh, Bush was about to vacate office uh, because Clinton had been elected, he issued pardons on Christmas Eve to all those who were out uh, waiting um, for trial. And thus the Iran-Contra investigation resulted in a limited number of convictions, some of which were overturned, and some charges which end up being pardoned by the president. So once again, like in Watergate, we had pardons become a big issue at the end. Uh, Walsh went on to write a report. Uh, his report on the Iran-Contra affair um, was a long one. Uh, the whole investigation took seven years, about which critics complained. The cost of the investigation, I think, was pegged at $37.6 million, uh, about which critics complained. And at the end of it, uh, Walsh was required to write a report and submit that report to three judges on that same court. The report was not required to be made public, but he had to turn it over to those judges. The judges were not required to release it, um, but they did. And that is a big issue in American law. I will stop for a moment and point out that in an ordinary criminal prosecution in the United States, uh, the rule, generally speaking, is charge or be quiet. So if someone is being investigated to find out whether they engaged in accounting fraud, if there's a determination uh, by the prosecutor and the later the grand jury that the person is guilty uh, or likely to be guilty and thus charged and should be charged a public indictment issues, there's a public trial, the public can access the evidence and then there's a conviction or an acquittal. But were a prosecutor to decide that there isn't a basis to charge the individual, there's not enough evidence, or that there's enough evidence, but the case doesn't warrant a prosecution and the discretion is not to charge, in the ordinary case, nothing is said. And the rule is that nothing um, impeaching the character 
uh, of the person who was under investigation would be said publicly um, in fairness to the potential defendant. Uh, I would note there are some exceptions, uh, particularly ones of um, important national interest to assure the public of what's going on, but that's the general rule. When the Iran-Contra report was released um, by uh, Judge Walsh, um, he had some favorable things in there um, for President Reagan. He indicated that there was no credible evidence that President Reagan broke the law, but he also noted in the report that became public that President Reagan had knowingly participated or at least acquiesced in covering up the scandal. Um, he further stated that with regard to President Bush, who had been the vice president under Reagan, that there was no evidence that he violated any criminal statute, but then complained that in effect, he believed that President Bush withheld evidence. And finally, uh, Judge Walsh noted in there that if Congress had seen the information um, that he had available to him earlier, that the impeachment of President Reagan, quote, certainly should have been considered, uh, close quote. So the critics of the independent counsel statute uh, would criticize that there's a public report where folks not charged. They criticize the report as not being balanced and criticize just the existence and release of the report as being inconsistent with traditional American judicial process. I would note that an interesting side note came up uh, during the whole Iran-Contra investigation, which is the five-year um, statute um, came up again. So in 1987, um, President Reagan renewed the statute. While in the midst of the controversy, he still maintained that he thought the statute was unconstitutional and predicted that the Supreme Court would strike it down. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court heard the case uh, or heard a challenge to the statute in a separate case uh, in 1988 and upheld the statute uh, seven to one. Uh, the one dissenting uh, vote was Justice late Justice Scalia, and many folks who are critics of the statute turned to his opinion, even though it was uh, in the minority, uh, distinctly in the minority, as being a good primer on why folks don't like those statutes. So there, that takes us uh, up until 1992, which is when the next time the statute came up um, for um, renewal. The Republicans at this point in time, um, having felt burned by the work of Judge Walsh as an independent counsel, uh, filibustered the effort um, uh, to have this law passed, and it didn't pass. And so the independent counsel statute or the Ethics in Government Act as amended lapsed in 1992. So from 78 to 92, there was a law in effect, changed over time, and in 1992, there was not. And the expiration of the statute uh, was cheered by many, particularly on the Republican side. But then a funny thing happened. Uh, president Clinton uh, was now uh, the president. And now there were a number of investigations that began to swirl around President Clinton. And suddenly the folks, particularly on the Republican side, who were not fans of the independent counsel statute, suddenly uh, got religion that uh, these statutes were actually a pretty good thing when you're investigating a president. And so in 1994, the bill was reauthorized with the support of the Republicans. Um, interestingly, the Republican um, support came at the beginning of what was called the Whitewater investigation, which I'll talk about next. But I would note um, that at the beginning of the Whitewater investigation, because there was no statute, the Attorney General had still gone 
uh, under her own authority to an outside lawyer, uh, a well-known lawyer, well-respected lawyer and former prosecutor named Bob Fisk to conduct the investigation. Yet the Republicans decided they wanted an independent counsel not picked by the administration. Uh, and when they advocated for that law, uh, one of the Democratic congressmen noted that the Republicans had experienced a miraculous conversion from two years before having fought the law. Well, the law gets passed and it's put on President Clinton's desk uh, for signature, even while he's being investigated. Uh, President Clinton signed the bill and he called the law a foundation stone for the trust between the government and our citizens. He dismissed claims that the law would involve a waste of money. He dis dismissed claims that the law would be used in a partisan way and said that the statute had, quote, been in the past and is today a force for government integrity and public confidence, uh, close quote. Um, one would not think he would say that same thing about the law just a few years later when uh, that law was used to vigorously investigate him. By 1998, there were seven special counsel investigations underway of the Clinton investigation, and the most prominent one was Whitewater. You may wonder where the name Whitewater comes from, and it all started when President Clinton and his uh, wife Hillary were in Arkansas. He was governor, and they investigated in a land deal in Arkansas where they bought undeveloped property with others in the hope that they would turn it into a resort and make a profit. The invest the investment went very poorly and then people began asking questions about what were the terms of the financial arrangement and did he get special treatment or engage in any improper um, behavior with some of his partners several of whom were under investigation and later charged and convicted and in fact one of the people who invested with him then refused to ever testify um, uh, going to jail for contempt for refusing to answer questions while this was going on, um, there, uh, the Bob Fisk had been replaced. The person who was appointed by the Department of Justice to look at this um, was replaced uh, once the law was passed that required someone appointed um, outside. And a man named Ken Starr uh, was put in his place and he took over the Whitewater investigation. It became a sprawling investigation. There were lots of different tentacles to the Whitewater investigation. Some of them sometimes given their own names, reminiscent of Watergate. So there was Filegate, there was Travelgate. Um, there were different things. There was an issue raised about uh, certain evidence being missing. Uh, Hillary Clinton had worked at a law firm that did relevant work. When they asked for the billing records to see what she had done, certain billing records were missing and not found at the law firm, but later found in the White House. Um, there was a White House colleague who had been a partner at the same law firm in Arkansas who committed suicide. And there was all sorts of speculation about why he committed suicide and whether this tied into criminal activity. And while this was all going on, at one point, uh, the independent counsel who was appointed, uh, the man named Ken Starr, indicated that he would leave uh, the investigation in the summer of 1997 uh, to become the dean of, of Pepperdine Law School uh, out in California. There was a bit of an uproar and pushback that he shouldn't leave with this outstanding. And eventually he changed his mind, uh, said I will no longer go to Pepperdine Law School. They need to move on and get a new dean. And he stayed around to do an investigation uh, that included whether or not President Clinton 
had lied about his sexual relationships with several women. And at this point, um, you can see that the investigation has gone pretty far from its initial moorings into whether or not there were improprieties in financial dealings in a land investment in Arkansas and was now into the intimate personal behavior of the president. And that investigation went on for four years, at the end of which uh, Starr, as the independent counsel, issued a report. It was a 453-page public report that suggested that President Clinton had committed perjury uh, by denying his affair, um, uh, an illicit affair he had. Uh, the report itself uh, was criticized as containing salacious material in too much detail. The report uh, laid out 11 possible grounds for impeachment um, uh, by Congress. And in fact, uh, following the issues of his report, um, as we all know, there was an impeachment of President Clinton. There were allegations that the team under Starr had engaged in inappropriate relations with the press, leaking information that a prosecutor should not discuss with the press on background. And eventually there was an impeachment proceeding at which um, uh, President Clinton was found not guilty. Uh, there were a large number of people on, on uh, Kenneth Starr's team, one of whom is the now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, when Brett Kavanaugh uh, left uh, the impeachment team, he wrote a law review article opining that the independent counsel statute should not exist in the form it was in. He made a number of criticisms of the statute, generally of the nature that I think he believed more uh, power should stay within the executive branch uh, as to who should appoint special counsels and that the remedy for people who are not happy with it is political accountability. But one of the things that he thought uh, strongly in that article was that public reports should not issue. Uh, and again, that goes back to the, the same issue. Uh, the argument on one side is if I was investigated in an ordinary criminal case and you didn't charge me, no one, no one would know about that, and those are the rules. And why, if that ordinary criminal investigation suddenly touches upon someone who's politically powerful, do I lose my rights and suddenly people write reports saying bad things about me that I'm left with no vehicle in court to disprove? Uh, and so I think uh, Justice, now Justice Kavanaugh articulated his view that, quote, the ordinary rules of prosecutorial secrecy should apply, close quote. I will tell you that the other side of the argument uh, often comes from folks uh, who say, well, we've just invested tens of millions of dollars and years into an investigation to find out whether or not there's confidence in the government. And the whole point of independent counsels is to give a fair investigation and reassure the public that no one has been spared out of political favor. And how can people trust that with just um, a independent counsel saying, I'm done, trust me. So those arguments continue to this day. If we looked at the um, uh, Watergate um, uh, investigation as the high watermark for confidence in special counsels and independent prosecutors, we can then look at how um, Judge Walsh was sharply criticized in the Iran-Contra matter, um, right or wrong, and then Ken Starr was uh, uh, roundly criticized by many, right or wrong, in the Whitewater investigation. So with that backdrop, we now come to 1999 is when the statute next uh, comes up for renewal. And the short answer is in 1999, no one renewed it.
since 1999, the last 22 years, there hasn't been an independent capital statute uh, in place in the US. Now there was what we would call a special counsel regulation adopted by the Attorney General in June of 1999, which basically said that, okay, there's no independent counsels, but an Attorney General, if they determine that a criminal investigation is warranted and that the normal process of investigation would present a conflict of interest and the public interest requires an appointment of a special counsel, then the Attorney General has discretion to appoint. And I think that's uh, important for two reasons. It's no longer triggered by some standard where an Attorney General must appoint unless they can find um, some factor. It's left to the discretion of the Attorney General who has to balance whether or not he or she believes that their own Department of Justice can assign a team uh, who will be believed by the public to do a credible investigation and thus handle it according to the normal rules by people inside the government or whether they think um, that the public perception uh, requires that the Department of Justice go outside so that people would respect any decision to charge or not charge is not being influenced by politics. The second part of that piece that says the Attorney General has the discretion to appoint is that it's not only up to his or her discretion, but he or she would make the actual appointment, not the three judges as had happened in the post Watergate statute. The next thing that happened in that regulation that still is in effect today is that the scope of the investigation was defined at the beginning by the Attorney General and could only be expanded uh, with the permission of the Attorney General. An independent counsel couldn't decide that he or she wanted to do more, nor could they go to a court. It would be defined by the Attorney General. And lastly, the special counsel appointed would not be subject to the day-to-day -day supervision of the Department of Justice looking over their work, but the Attorney General could require that the special counsel um, report on investigative steps and the Attorney General could, if he or she disagreed with any significant step, countermand it, and the Attorney General could also fire the special counsel. And so you could see that the regulation, um, not passed by Congress, but imposed by the DOJ, now left room for the DOJ on its own accord to go outside when needed and trusted the Attorney General to decide when to do it, how to do it, who should do it, what the scope it should be, and uh, had the, the power to fire. Now at this point, after hearing about special counsels being criticized for what they did and didn't do, you might wonder uh, who in the right mind would be dumb enough to take on one of those assignments. Um, and I'll explain how that um, happened to me uh, next. So we turn to the investigation involving um, uh, the leak of the identity of Valerie Plame in the early 2000s. And I'll refresh your recollection uh, about the, the sequence that led to that. In early uh, 1993 in January, prior to the start of the Iraq war, President Bush gave a State of the Union address uh, uh, to Congress, but widely televised. And he talked about the efforts by Iraq to obtain uranium and he made it one particular statement. It came to be known as the 16 words. Uh, and that statement was the following. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein has recently sought significant quantities of uranium in Africa, close quote. Following the State of the Union address by some weeks and other events, the United States actually went to war with Iraq. In July 2003, after the war had started, 
an ambassador, a former ambassador named Joe Wilson, who had served as U.S. ambassador to the country of Niger, wrote an op-ed casting doubt on the claim that was in the State of the Union, those 16 words. Wilson had indicated that the prior year he had been sent to Africa to investigate that claim, and Wilson stated that it was his understanding that he was sent to Niger to do that investigation um, at the instigation of Vice President Cheney, and that was his understanding. And then he believed that his work uh, in Niger uh, did not bear out that claim. He did not think that the claim was true, that he refuted the claim, and he passed the information back. When, um, when that all happened, uh, uh, he wrote this article, and there was a strong reaction because the Iraq war was controversial in the US. And a week after that op-ed appeared in the news, a news story uh, by a columnist revealed that Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame, had worked as a, a secret agent for the CIA. This provoked an uproar. Um, this was condemned as a retaliatory leak against Wilson for speaking his mind, um, and Valerie Plame's CIA, CIA career ended. President Bush um, vowed publicly that there would be a thorough investigation and that his administration would cooperate with the investigation. He indicated that if there was a leak in his administration, quote, I want to know who it is. And if that person has violated the law, the person will be taken care of, close quote. The White House then denied the involvement of either Carl Rove or Scooter Libby, whose names were being bandied about in the press as possible suspects. The Attorney General took this case and realized he had relationships with some of the names uh, being bandied about. In fact, I think Carl Rove had run the Attorney General's campaign uh, when he had run for Senate in Missouri and decided that he could not lead the investigation credibly so he recused himself. The investigation then fell to the number two at the department, the then Deputy Attorney General, uh, Jim Comey, um, uh, and he became uh, charged with the case. Um, full disclosure, Jim Comey is a, a personal friend of mine, notwithstanding that Jim Comey decided that he could not credibly um, do his day job of working with high-level administration officials while investigating high-level administration officials. So he appointed me as the special counsel to investigate that matter. Oddly, I was not appointed, appointed pursuant to the special counsel regulation. So that regulation required the Department of Justice to go outside the Department of Justice to get a prosecutor. At the time, I was the U.S. attorney in Chicago. And as, as the Deputy Attorney General Comey explained, it was easier and faster to involve someone outside of Washington who already had a clearance, an office, and up and running. So. I was appointed separate from the regulation. Um, I will not bore you with the details of that investigation, other than to say at the end, one person, Scooter Libby, who was the chief of staff to Vice President Cheney, was criminally charged with perjury, obstruction of justice, and false statements for denying his role in leaking claims identity. Uh, he went to trial and was convicted. Uh, he was sentenced to prison, and then uh, President Bush commuted Libby's sentence. And in the US, there's a difference between a pardon and a commutation, where a pardon simply says we wipe the conviction clean. Uh, and if there's a sentence, the person doesn't go to jail. In a commutation, the conviction stands, uh, but the person doesn't go to prison. So President uh, Bush commuted Libby's sentence. And then in the last administration, President Trump uh, went further and pardoned Libby. Um, 
the point again shows that uh, as came in the Watergate investigation and Iran-Contra, um, and even in the Whitewater investigation where uh, President Clinton pardoned the witness who refused to testify, uh, the specter of pardons or commutations hangs around these investigations as they go forward. And lastly, uh, but not least, we have the Mueller investigation. Uh, when President Trump was elected in the fall of 2016, much to many surprise, I was I was in uh, County Clare uh, visiting cousins in the, uh, August of 16, and they talked about this fellow who owned a golf course in County Clare in Dunebeg running for president, and they all thought he had a chance, and I quickly dismissed this as just media hype that uh, President Trump could win, uh, but I was very wrong. And after he took office, there were allegations that there had been Russian interference in the 2016 election. While that was being pursued um, by President Trump, uh, an issue came up uh, where it later came out that uh, uh, FBI Director Comey thought the president was pressuring him privately to go soft on the investigation, and particularly on a national security advisor named Mike Flynn. And when he didn't do so, Comey was fired. The FBI opened an investigation into obstruction. There was an outcry for a special counsel. And eight days later, uh, Robert Mueller was appointed to investigate. Robert Mueller is, is and was a Vietnam veteran hero who had multiple leadership roles in the Department of Justice, widely respected, had been the FBI director for more than a decade. They actually passed a statute to let him serve more than 10 years. He had led the FBI through the response to 9-11. Uh, he was warmly embraced by many at the beginning, but people quickly turned on him when the investigation became very political. One example was the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who had been a huge backer of uh, Ken Starr in the Whitewater investigation and argued uh, that it was unpatriotic for anyone to criticize him or his work. First, greeted the appointment of Mueller as, quote, a superb choice, impeccable for honesty and integrity. And then not too long thereafter, switched horses and said that the questions that Mueller purportedly wants to ask the president are absurd. And they are clearly a trap to establish a case for obstruction. At the end of the case, Mueller's team um, uh, charged 34 individuals and three companies. He did not obviously charge President Trump, but he issued a report divided in two parts which he then gave to the attorney general. Uh, it was not his decision whether it would be public. The first part uh, found that while the Trump campaign had welcomed Russian interference and expected to benefit from it, there was insufficient evidence of criminal conspiracy uh, with the Russians. So it cleared him legally, uh, but indicated that Trump campaign uh, was a willing participant and markedly called out the Russian government. The second part of his report uh, was very different. He noted at the beginning that because a sitting president cannot be indicted, he did not think it was fair to answer this question because if he would answer the question of whether or not President Trump engaged in obstruction, uh, that the president wouldn't be able to respond to the courtroom. So he said, I won't answer this question in effect and laid out 10 episodes that might constitute obstruction and left it for uh, Congress to decide. Um, it then proceeded with Congress obviously engaging in an impeachment proceeding for which there was an acquittal. And then there was also um, at that impeachment proceeding, Ken Starr of Whitewater background showed up as defense counsel for President Trump and said famously, we are now living in the age of impeachment. How did we get here? 
which many found ironic, but he went from being a champion of impeachment when he was an independent counsel to a, 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 a to being an opponent of impeachment when he represented Trump. I think we can end here by saying the, the experience from Grant to Teapot Dome to Watergate and on has been a checkered experience of going back and forth. I think most Americans would agree that there's that old situation when I was a kid, you'd see a thing on the wall with a fire extinguisher that says, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. We see the need for an independent counsel or a special counsel because those situations come up where it's simply not credible for an administration to investigate itself. And most people would agree there. After that, the agreement falls apart. There's a dispute as to who should be the one to decide whether a special prosecutor is needed. And then if one is needed, who should appoint, whether it should be from the executive branch or whether it should be by the judicial branch, who should control the scope uh, of the investigation to keep it from not being uh, caught short and where punches are pulled, but not for it to wander where it becomes an uncontrollable beast. Uh, then the most important issues also come to who should control whether the special prosecutor can be fired. And the last and maybe most important issue is what to do at the end of an investigation that results in no charges. With one school of thought that says, pack up your books and go home. Uh, if there's no criminal charge, then we don't talk about it. Uh, to the other school that says the whole point of this exercise is to tell the American people what happened and to give them confidence that uh, no stone was unturned uh, and that the fair result is justified by those facts and therefore to take the report and make it public or as much public as possible to the to the to the public. So to Chief Justice Clark's question at the beginning about what we can learn, uh, this is not something where we get a, a little bit closer to the right answer every time. I think it's one of those things that depending on how the last episode turned out, uh, the pendulum swings back and forth as to how much discretion uh, should be given, and I don't know that we'll ever have an answer other than, as I said at the beginning, we can't live with them and we can't live without them. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. We hope you enjoy the remaining talks, which will be available on YouTube to view and wherever you get your podcasts.